This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 117, Introductory Remarks on Christ and Culture. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey. We have a very special episode lined up for you today. I am pleased to release the first installment of a new project on Christ and culture. Our hope is to provide an enlightening discussion on the subject. And it is a much debated topic, that of Christ and culture, with several varying approaches even from within the Reformed community. And our goal in the way we have structured this particular project is to present you with several different yet all Reformed positions. So to do so, we have invited four very capable men to participate. Let me introduce them. We have Bill Dennison, who is a professor of interdisciplinary studies at Covenant College. He's also the professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Northwest Theological Seminary. He's the author of The Young Boltman, Context for His Understanding of God, 1884 to 1925, and Paul's Two-Age Construction and Apologetics. We have interviewed him on both of those books. He's a very capable scholar and uh, one who has a very interesting and unique perspective on the subject of Christ and culture. Our second participant is Dr. Daryl G. Hart. Dr. Hart teaches at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania, as well as Temple University here in Philadelphia. And he has authored many books and articles, including A Secular Faith, Why Christianity Favors the Separation of Church and State, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, as well as Defending the Faith, J. Gresham Machen and the Crisis of Conservative Protestantism in Modern America. Dr. Hart is an elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he serves on the OPC's committee on Christian education. You can find many of his writings and interaction at oldlife.org. Our third participant is Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson is pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He's also a faculty member at New St. Andrews College. Pastor Wilson has written many books and articles, including The Deluded Atheist, Heaven Misplaced, Christ's Kingdom on Earth, and Letter from a Christian Citizen. He appears in the documentary film Collision, documenting his debates with anti-theist Christopher Hitchens. And he also appears in their promotional tour for their book, Is Christianity Good for the World? Our final participant is Dr. Nelson Klosterman, who teaches theology at Mid-America Reform Seminary. He previously served at Bethel Christian Reformed Church of Marion, South Dakota, as well as Emmanuel Christian Reformed Church of Sheldon, Iowa. Dr. Klosterman offers weekend seminars on Christian marriage and family, Christian medical ethics, and Christian cultural worldview. He has produced video materials for training elders and deacons, and he writes frequently for Christian renewal. So he has a very interesting perspective and qualifications for speaking on this subject as well. He has translated the Ten Commandments and Responsible Conduct, both by Dutch theologian J. Dalma, as well as Preaching and the History of Salvation by C. Trimp, and Dr. Klosterman also serves as co-editor of the Mid-America Journal of Theology. 
Our procedure in this discussion is that we have three different rounds of recordings. Round one included a separate recording with each participant in which we asked a series of questions. Each participant was asked the very same questions, and they were designed to provide the listener with a lay of the land regarding the positions that each participant holds. After that, we swapped the recordings between or among all the different participants so they were able to hear everyone else's introduction. And then we recorded a second round of recordings in which they were able to respond to everyone else's introductory sections. And then finally, we swapped the recordings again and we recorded round three in which everyone was able to respond to the criticisms and also provide concluding remarks regarding their position on several different topics under the heading of Christ and culture. Now, we have divided the questions from round one into seven different categories, and these episodes of Christ the Center are going to be coming out every week, and we're going to be giving you just a portion of this first round every week. Uh, Our first section was just general or introductory, which we asked some basic questions regarding the subject. Then we got into politics, and then vocation, followed by education, then fine arts, etc. Then a larger section on theological undercurrents, which included a discussion on common grace, natural law, and eschatology. And then our seventh section, we finished just with a conclusion. And today, in this episode, we will be presenting that inclusion, or the bread on the sandwich, as it were. We'll hear each participant's introductory and concluding remarks from round one. And this should provide a solid foundation for moving forward to our other sections. So we hope you enjoy what we have lined up for you today. Our first participant, Bill Dennison. At least to help uh, a discussion, and when I discuss this in the in my classroom um, and publicly, uh, at least giving people a frame of reference, uh, I definitely characterize my position as Augustinian. And uh, in that, uh, what I mean by that is simply is, is I, I start out with the understanding of the um, eschatological antithesis between the city of God and the city of man. Uh, following the biblical um, injunction there uh, from the fall, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Um, In Augustine's position, there also is this position in terms of the mixed city, Uh, so you could talk about a third domain, if you wish, in which the wheat and the, uh, the biblical imagery here would be that the wheat and the tares are together. but uh, nevertheless, I do see Augustine's position, especially um, in Book 15 of the City of God, where it's sort of presented in a nice, succinct way. I see it um, uh, curving and uh, being um, uh, shaped by the eschatological and into the into present existence of life, so that uh, those who reign eternally with God. Um, uh, are viewed in, with respect to the city of God and those who are under the eternal punishment of of of, of God with respect to um, uh, their alignment with the kingdom of Satan uh, is viewed as well. 
And so I see this also mapped out by Augustine um, in respect to a progressive revelation um, as it is found in Scripture. He outlines it that way. And um, and I think the overview with uh, concerning us as Christians, I, I love this quote in Augustine. Uh, he says, By grace a pilgrim below, and by grace a citizen above. And um, and I love the emphasis on grace, the description of how we are pilgrims as we journey here on earth for the believer, uh, for those who are part of the city of God, and yet those who are part of the city of God are, are have their citizenship uh, in heaven above, along with the affirmation by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.20. That's where I, and I was just going to say, and then I that uh, under Voss's two-age construction in the modern context of exegesis in the Reformed tradition, and of course in my, and as I analyze culture, I take a Vantillian uh, approach uh, with respect to a philosophy of history and a um, and a and the transcendental critique or analysis. Daryl Hart classifying his own position. I guess I would call it Augustinian, and, and um, I, I, I'm not. I'm not uncomfortable with the label Two Kingdom. Uh, I actually came to this more, this position more through the study of Machen and um, the Southern Presbyterian tradition of the, the spirituality of the church doctrine. And I've studied that some. Um, and, and the sort of distinctions made there that, that um, caused the church to be regarded in as having a special holy mission that's distinct from other institutions is how I began to formulate this. But um, I'm comfortable with Two Kingdom, but I, I do try to um, throw in Augustine every once in a while because I think Augustine um, is old, venerable, and uh, but I, I do think that there's something in the Western tradition, Western tradition of Christianity as well that that recognizes some kind of doubleness. Um, well, so you already mentioned uh, Machen, but what other theologians in Augustine, what other theologians do you find more or less affinity with? And are there any particular books or, or, or things that you would that you would find in harmony with your particular position? Um, boy, uh, well, I, I mean, cur- among the current people writing, I mean, Dave Van Drunen at Westminster, California, has um, has done some stuff on natural law. And two kingdoms. Mike Horton has also done some. Jason Stellman, a graduate of Westminster, California, who's a pastor in Washington State uh, in the PCA, has, has this new book out on um, on a dual ethic. Um, so, I mean, those are. I guess I came to it mainly through reading Princetonians um, and the history of American Presbyterianism. Um, some people like Gilbert Mylander, a Lutheran ethicist at Val- Valparaiso University, I've, I've benefited from his work, even though I wouldn't necessarily put him in the Two Kingdom camp. But he, um, as a Lutheran, he's certainly working with those categories. Um, but again, I would I would actually argue that that this 
spirituality of the church doctrine has been much more present in American Presbyterianism, particularly in old school Southern folks. And that's and when you read people like Dabney or Thornwell, um, for instance, which or Hodge even on various political and cultural matters, you can see a kind of two kingdom outlook at work. And then, of course, I spent a lot of time with Machen on this stuff. Pastor Douglas Wilson. At the macro level, um, I would classify my position as um, Christ as Lord of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a subset of Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. So uh, I want to avoid um, unnecessary dualisms wherever possible, and I want to avoid um, distinctions for the sake of distinctions. Christ, uh, Christ is the Lord of uh, the natural world. He's the, he's the Lord revealed in Scripture. He's the head of the Church. He is um, the one who has the right to rule every tribe and nation because he bought it, bought them with his blood. So, uh, if we went back to Niebuhr's famous, uh, you know, uh, compass, you know, Christ and culture, Christ versus culture, Christ over culture, I would, I, I would hold to a form of an evangelical form of Christ, the Lord of culture. Mm. What other theologians do you find uh, more or less affinity with? Well, I. I would say the the, theo- the theologian that I would I would probably have the most affinity with, sort of as is, would be someone like Harold O. J. Brown. Um, I have learned from people who were, um, you know, in, that represent positions other than mine, uh, both sort of to the hard right and to the softer left, if you will. Um, so I've I've been indebted to some of the recon writers, Rush Dooney and others. I've learned particular things from them. I've actually appreciated a lot of what Carl Henry has had to say about Christ and culture. Um, and that's part of my, my evangelical background. You know. So, But probably the um, if you wanted to wrap it up and say, okay, what Reformed theologian do you find the most natural affinity with when it comes to issues of politics and culture and all of those sorts of things. I would, I would say Harold O.J. Brown. Dr. Nelson Klosterman. With regard to uh, questions of Christ and culture, I would not uh, classify my position with any kind of label mm. or um, speak about any uniquenesses uh, with regard to it. I would say, as I have continued to think and write and teach on this subject, that that my position has grown in connection with interacting interacting with people like H. Richard Niebuhr, and uh, and uh, others like uh, D. A. Carson. He has a book recently, uh, Christ and Culture Revisited, in which he interacted with Niebuhr. I've written about this on the pages of Christian Renewal. And uh, I have uh, explained on those pages some of my critique of the Niebuhr paradigm, particularly the transformational paradigm. Um, and uh, I find that uh, Carson's analysis is, is pretty well in line with what, with what I would uh, have said and, and a little bit with what I've written. If I were to give my, 
my own position uh, with regard to Christ and culture. I'm attracted quite uh, vigorously to um, the words of Jesus Christ uh, that are recorded in, in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly uh, in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. That has to do with the whole notion of uh, salt and light. Let me explain that a little bit. It's a biblical passage that, in my judgment, needs to be listened to quite quite carefully, 15 through 16 of Matthew 5, principally because I'm concerned about some misapplications of it. Um, for example, there are those who take the salt metaphor and, on that basis, uh, suggest that Christians have to go out in the world to preserve or conserve or redeem the world in connection with uh, the evidence and presence of sin. I think a careful study of the passage suggests that uh, what Christ is doing here is he's, he's talking about salt as a flavor, not as a preserver. The text says, if the salt becomes foolish, that's the literal rendering, the salt becomes foolish. Now, we can't render that very easily into our English idiom because we don't know what salt and foolishness uh, have to do with each other, but if you study the scriptures, foolishness is disobedience to God's commandment, and saltiness, by contrast, would represent obedience to God's will. And the way that we can be salt of the earth is by being obedient to God's will, In and I'm going to suggest, in all of life. The same is true of light, and I guess the bottom line of those metaphors is that both salt and light exist strictly for the sake of their surroundings. Um, I wrote an essay on this for what's called Cardis Magazine, which is an online magazine, recently published in which I suggest that the Church exists for the sake of the world. Now, that can sound very liberal, very, very liberal, unless we understand that the calling of the Church is both to witness and to walk. The witness and the walk of the Church in the world are designed to uh, provide unbelievers with opportunity both to ask the why question, the First Peter 3.15 question, and the opportunity to glorify God for the sake of our works. In fact, that's what Jesus says. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let me extrapolate that a bit. I, I think when Jesus is saying, let them see your good works so that they may give glory to your Father in heaven, he's not suggesting the good works here are exhausted by the means of grace or by the labor of the uh, institutional church. It includes that, but from the church and from the means of grace, there radiates um, life and lifestyle that is obedient in the world. And the character of that life and lifestyle are such that it's provocative, asking people or, or prompting people to ask why, the why question. Why do you do what you do and why don't you do what you don't do? And also, it is so... Uh, uh, stimulating this life and lifestyle of Christians, that uh, non-believers are given to to thank God, a God whom they don't acknowledge, really. So Jesus' words in Matthew five thirteen to sixteen form they constitute for me a kind of a kind of a vision for the relationship between Christians anyway, Christians and culture. Hmm. Would there be any other theologians that you find more or less affinity with? Well. Um, Yes, there is one who is relatively unknown. He's a Dutchman, surprisingly. Um, one not well known in North America by the name of Klaus Gilder. And his, his book has been translated into English entitled Christ and Culture. I, uh, 
I would like to, I'll just put it that way, I haven't committed myself to it, but I would like to um, translate, re-translate that book in an annotated edition, because I think it has something to say to our current discussion. Skilder emphasized notions of office and vocation, uh, cultural mandate. He had a particular slant, a kind of a polemical slant with regard to common grace. We'll get into that later. But uh, I consider his major contribution to the discussion to be um, an understanding of our, that is, Christians' partnership in the world with God. There's a notion of co-laborers. We are co-workers with God in the sense of um, exercising uh, our callings as as, uh, those who are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Here is Bill Dennison answering the question, how are Christians supposed to be salt and light in the world? My, my response to that, again, in the context, in the Sermon on the Mount, we must not make that passage, salt and light, into Christian activism, in which the salt and light becomes a paradigm on which we measure our works in, quote, usually constructed back into a monistic conception of culture in terms of what we are doing to transform or change the culture. We are salt and light because it is by definition, it's the state of the believer and the church's existence. We are the salt and light. You don't become the salt and light through Christian activism. That's implicit works righteousness, which I continually say that is very much at the heart, I believe, of most Christian activism today, especially in terms of uh, the neo-Calvinist restorationist view of culture. Uh, the, 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 uh, we are, the salt in life is a salt in light is the definition of the believer and the creation. That's who he is. Uh, And all we are are to be obedient and faithful, are the two words I always use. All we are to be is obedient and faithful to Christ, and that includes, of course, is the prayers that we are to offer up in in the situation in which we live, in this existence of Mm -hmm. the two ages. And then our last question, uh, how would you define culture? Aha. Interesting. Well, the problem is, as you can see, I've already defined it in two different ways. I've placed it in, in the Augustinian mode. And, uh, but if you wanted to generalize the, the two, two aspects is, is the culture, the culture of the kingdom of heaven is, is created it's made and it's sustained by the sovereignty of God with all the various areas of life. I don't have any problem in terms of looking at that, if you wish, you know, 
if there is a good spot <laughs> in some ways of the Duiveridian conception, um, uh, Duiveridian model, is that it does sort of give us the modalities gives us a a broad perspective of uh, insight into some of the various areas uh, of existence in which, of course, the Christian functions uh, in the world. But so uh, as but anyways, we the the culture is God is uh, has uh, created, sustained uh, our existence uh, in terms of our various uh, aspects and talents. As we as we correspond with his activity uh, with us to bring us into the uh, as he continues to sustain us in the culture of Christ, that's how I looked at that. The the, the kingdom of Satan uh, is a culture in which in which of course is that which is uh, at the heart is uh, the heart of of unbelief. Uh, and which the man in his autonomy and rebellion and resistance to God is trying to sus- uh, sustain themselves, build their own city like Cain uh, with respect to his, the first birth of his son, Enoch. They're trying to sustain their existence, make their world uh, for themselves uh, on their own, uh, on their boat, on, out of their own evil hearts. Now, there's a third area, and that is that is the kind of the mixture uh, aspect uh, that Augustine talks about, in which the wheat and the tares are together. So, in there, there's a kind of joint cooperation uh, in this world uh, with Christians and non-Christians. And uh, then again, uh, but nevertheless, that is being uh, designed and worked out according to God's own purposes with respect to that cooperation. Uh, and which also, obviously, will come under the final judgment and extinction uh, when Christ comes again. And that, again, uh, pe- human beings uh, are given the, uh, the ability, as the image of God, to create and to make, uh, you know, uh, like an automobile, uh, uh, steel, things that are that have gone on, uh, wagons, you know, if we're talking about uh, the medieval period, uh, they can make make these things in which to better sustain their life in this world, but nevertheless, nevertheless, there isn't uh, anything um, in this context in which, um, um, uh, which is sustaining for eternity. So the various the various talents can be used in terms of those creative aspects of which God does as we reflect the image of God. And the non-Christian still is image of God, in my view. Daryl Hart on how the Christian should be salt and light in the world. The simple answer is in his or her her vocation. Um, What God has called Christians to do is the way that they are to be salt and light. So if you're to be a mother, if you're to be a baker, a banker, a preacher, or whatever, all those are ways to be salt and light. And I really do think that 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 is is enough. Um, It doesn't mean that Christians can't evangelize on the jobs. But it doesn't mean either that they have to evangelize on the jobs. So I, it, it really depends on what 
on the constitution of Christians and what they're mm-hmm. capable of doing. Of course, I'm reacting against my own background of having to go door to door and give tracts or to people. So, and then uh, finally, um, a deceptively easy or difficult <clears throat> question: How would you define culture? Um. It's all that stuff in which humans engage that is not economic, political, um, and 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 c- civil, I guess. So, I mean, it has to do with language, it has to do with food, it has to do with kind of co- values, morals. Um, I think education is a part of it, um, even though, of course, education spills over into pol- political, civil realm. Um, but it's a very murky term, and and um, and this is why, even when Richard Niebuhr wrote Christ and Culture, he had to spend a lot of time trying to f- clarify what culture is. And I'm still not sure that anybody, even the greatest anth- <laughs> anthropologist, has a great understanding great. of culture. But where we ask last. Yeah, I guess I would say it's what's human, but not um, necessarily institutionalized in those areas of, say, church, family, and uh, and state. Doug Wilson. Christians are to be salt and light, I, I think, principally by being connected to the body of Christ, the church, which is corporately salt and light in the, in the world. And, uh, and we are salt and light in the world by representing Jesus Christ and his gospel to an unbelieving and dark world. So I, I, I see worship as the dead center, the, the center of all cultural engagement. So in order to be salt and light, we've got to be in a city. Um, so Jesus said, you are a city on a hill. You know, you are the salt of the earth. You're, uh, you're the light of the world. When he's saying those things, he's speaking to his people corporately. So we're a city on a hill. We're not one lone mountaineer with a tent on top of a, <laughs> a hill. Uh, we're a city up there. And so we need to do what we do corporately. So I see the reformation of the church, the reformation of liturgy, the reformation of uh, worship as being the task one of what we're supposed to do, because precisely because we're to be salt and light. Mm. And then finally, uh, the most basic question of all, uh, but perhaps maybe the most slippery, how would you define culture? Ah. I like. I think that there's a simplistic way to take this, but I really like Henry Van Til's um, um, use of the uh, a phrase that captures that, where he said, "Culture is religion externalized." So I believe that cultus, cult, um, the the formal worship of a of a of a people's gods, cultus drives, shapes, and forms culture. And all cultures are the externalization or the, or, or the external embodiment of a particular faith, world and faith system. And unbelieving cultures 
are the embodiment of idolatrous worship at the center, and believing cultures are the embodiment of faithful worship of the true God. So culture is religion externalized. Once again, Nelson Klosterman. Culture is both a process and a product. It is a process of human uh, manipulation and uh, development and maturation, cultivation of the creation, of the gifts of creation, of the potential, the powers of creation, and uh, placing them in service to to human uh, need and to human development. It's a product, culture is a product insofar as this process takes, takes shape. It takes concrete, tangible shape. So, so we have a car with four wheels, and it burns a certain kind of fuel. Now, the products change, witness the, the explosion of technology, and so on. Um, I think that culture, as a process and a product, bears an unmistakable, ineradicable moral quality and worldview quality. So that there is, to, to speak of the culture is an abstraction. It doesn't exist. There are kinds of culture, both as process and product. Even in North America, we have competing kinds of culture. And I think that, and here, here's a, a basic answer to your question. I think that Christians as a community, and you did not hear me say the word church, Christians as a community, what Kuiper and others spoke of as the, the org, uh, church as organism, an idea, by the way, that is being sadly overlooked in this discussion, the Christians as a community need to be producing their own culture. They have to, they have to begin um, demonstrating, they have to begin articulating a process of cultivating and stewardship of this creation and demonstrating it in terms of product. You see, for example, the environmental movement. No, nobody ought to be as excited about the environmental challenges that we face today. Nobody ought to be as excited as Christians. I think this is a wonderful opportunity for Christians to, to both in their witness and their walk, demonstrate the uniqueness of their worldview. But we've let it, we, we've seeded it. We've handed it over, really. That brings an end to the first installment of our Christ and Culture project. We hope to have many weeks of this project coming out in the near future. So stay tuned and visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you will find information about all of our programs as well as what we're up to. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash reformedforum. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.